0: One other announcement, that is that there's a schedule change this week. And that means that we will not be having our normal midweek Bible class on Wednesday night. It will be on Tuesday night this week. Same time, everything else the same. It will be on Tuesday night and not Wednesday night. And then, mark your calendars on the 10th of October. On the 10th of October, there will be no midweek Bible class that week. There will be no midweek Bible class that week. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so grateful that we live in a nation where we have the freedoms to gather together and to worship you, to study your word, that we might continue to grow in the grace and by means of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we continue to pray today for our nation, for our national leaders, for our president, for his advisors, for cabinet members, for leaders in the military as they continue to... (coughs) ...formulate plans and devise strategy and tactics for dealing with this new war against terrorism. Father, we pray that you would uh, give this nation a real unity to back our, our political leaders. That those who would disrupt and destroy freedom, those enemies of freedom that are within our own nation... ...who do not understand the principle that freedoms are won and secured through military victory would not have a, a voice that is heard, that there are many who are antagonistic to this and do not understand these principles and would rather uh, give up their freedoms in order to avoid violence. And, Father, we pray that the cowards would have no influence in this nation. Lord, now as we study your word, we pray that we might not be cowards when it comes to facing spiritual reality and that we might understand the principles that are discussed here that we might have our thinking transformed that as we focus on your grace and understanding how you work in our lives and in human history that that we might have a greater sense of trust and a greater understanding of how you work in history that we may rely upon you exclusively in everything that we think say and do we pray this in the name of jesus christ our savior amen today we begin a new study We have been studying for the last year and a half in the book of Judges. Judges is the backdrop for Ruth. Now, in some ways, we don't need to be prepared, but I know that this being the first lesson in the series on Ruth, there will be those who will order the tape series on Ruth and not have had the year and a half preparation in Judges. So we'll do a little background and review to place things historically in Judges, as we go through this opening introduction to Ruth Ruth is one of the most poignant of books in the Bible At times it is heartbreaking Other times it is intense and penetrating Because it cuts to the heart of our common human experience We meet in this book on the, in the very beginning Naomi, a Jewish wife and mother Who within a very short time Loses both her husband and her two sons in death Life has dealt her a bitter and tragic blow, and as a result of that, she is going to respond, as so many do, by challenging the goodness of God. And as a result, she becomes bitter in her soul. But by the end of the book, we realize that Naomi is no longer empty and bitter. She is full and blessed. And so a major theme in this book, and I think the major doctrine of the book of Ruth, has to do with the grace of God in transforming suffering into blessing and sorrow into joy. Therefore, Ruth, set in the context of the dark days of the judges, the time of Israel's greatest apostasy and spiritual rebellion against God, we see that even in the midst of the rank paganism that is influencing the nation at that time, even in the midst of all of the violence that is is taking place, and we've seen that, especially in the... Our studies of the last month or so as we've looked at the end of the book of Judges and the, the episode dealing with uh, Micah and the Levitical priest who turns out to be Moses' grandson who leads the nation into a spiritual apostasy and sets up a competing religion, all in the name of God, all in the name of Yahweh. And then we also saw the fragmentation of the nation in the last three chapters and the self-righteousness and the legalism that, that dominated the culture and the self-centeredness of the Lee, of the Levite who becomes so absorbed in his own grief and the fact that he is his it's his concubine that is mistreated and murdered, uh, you know he completely overlooks the fact that that because of his own cowardly acts of failure to protect her and uh, the fact that he turned her out and gave her to the sodomites and in uh, Gibeah to, to uh, gang rape her, uh, that's his fault. But he overlooks that and he calls the nation to war. And we see this devastating civil war that just about decimates almost annihilates the entire tribe of Benjamin. So in that context there are there's a light, there's hope, and the message of Ruth is that even in the darkest days of our own lives, no matter how horrible things may seem, no matter how tragic the circumstances might appear, no matter how overwhelmingly uh, no, no matter how overwhelming the the uh, tragedies of our lives might appear, there is always hope. If we're alive, God still has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And we see this in Ruth, that even in the dark ages of the judges, God has, not, uh, God has not forgotten his people. God is not ignoring his people, but God is, even in the midst of their rebellion and spiritual apostasy, working to bring about the solution. And Ruth is the book of hope because what Ruth ends with is the foreshadowing of her grandson or great grandson, who is David, the type of Christ who will bring uh, the greatest period of prosperity and blessing to the nation. So Ruth is a book about grace, and how God transforms suffering and cursing into blessing. Now we need to look at some things just in terms of general introduction, as we always do when we look at a at a new book. Uh, Ruth is located in the English order of the Old Testament following the book of Judges. And I think it's important for us to look at how the Jews organized the Old Testament. We saw, we saw the importance of that in our study of Daniel, that Daniel is not in the Old Testament section of the, of the Nevi'im, the prophets, because even though it's concerned with prophecy, the thrust of Daniel is not about prophecy It is about how to live, how Daniel and his friends lived in the midst of a pagan society, applied doctrine, and how they demonstrated wisdom. And (coughs) the same thing is true of Ruth. Ruth in the Hebrew canon is not in the uh, prophets. It's not located in the Torah. It's located in the wisdom books. It's not located with Judges, which in the Old Testament canon... The Old Testament canon is organized in three three sections. You have the Torah, which are the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you have the prophets. And in the Hebrew canon, you have the former prophets, And the latter prophets, the former prophets, would be Joshua, Judges, Samuel. Remember, they didn't divide the books. That came about because they didn't fit on one scroll, so they were called 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Samuel, Kings. These are the former prophets, and the latter prophets are the major prophets that we speak of in the English canon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These are the major prophets, so that makes up the book of the prophets. And then the third division is the book of the writings called in Hebrew the Ketuvim and in the book of the writings you have your wisdom books such as Job, Psalms Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and also Ruth that is where Ruth is located in the Hebrew canon now Ruth is found there because of its literary style, two reasons I think first of all because of the literary style of the writer, he is extremely artistic this is a book that has all kinds of literary devices in it it is a masterful piece of literature it's the only short story in the uh, entire canon of scripture and although literary tradition assigns this to uh, samuel as the author we can't know that for sure but the other reason it is assigned to the kethavim or wisdom is because in this short story we're told how we can live wisely in the midst of undeserved suffering and how we can learn that how God transforms cursing into blessing, apply that in our own lives, so when we too go through those times of a personal tragedy and heartache, we can see from this example of how God will take that and transform it into blessing. The name of the book derives from one of the three principal characters. There are three main characters in the book of Ruth. There is Ruth herself, who is a Moabitess. Moab was a descendant of Lot. Remember that bizarre story after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot and his daughters are leaving. His wife turns back, is turned to a pillar of salt. Then his daughters get uh, Lot drunk, and they have uh, incestuous relations with him, and one of the sons is Moab. And so they are descendants of Lot, so that means the Moabites are, are distant cousins of the, of the Hebrews, but they are pagans, they are outside of the land. And remember, we studied about the Moabites in the early part of Judges when Eglon, the king of Moab, invaded uh, the southern part of Israel across the fords of the Jordan, uh, set up headquarters south of Jericho and established himself as a, as a king in that area. And it was Ehud, the left-handed, who came along. And uh, we, remember, we studied how Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. Now, everybody ought to remember that. So Ruth is from Moab. So uh, apparently, this did, we can exclude that time period as being the time period of... Um, of this particular uh, uh, background for this particular book. It probably occurred earlier. I think Ruth occurred fairly early in Judges, but not the initial period, probably within two generations of the death of Joshua. We have Ruth. We have her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then one man, Boaz, Boaz, becomes Ruth's husband, second husband after her first one has died. The interesting thing about this is that this is only the only book in the entire canon of Scripture named for a Gentile. It is, Ruth is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Five times in this book, in this short book, she is referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. The author wants us to make sure we understand that. Because this is a sign of of God's grace to those outside of Israel. This is how Gentiles were saved. Then we can see that Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament. But even though the book is named after Ruth, Ruth is really not the main character of the book. The book starts off with a personal crisis and tragedy in the life of Naomi and in her family, with the death of her husband and the death of her two sons. And the emphasis is on Naomi's loss, On her emptiness and on her bitterness. Because when she returns to her hometown of Bethlehem, she says, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. So she is embittered by her loss, and she's blaming God. And yet the book concludes not with some praise and blessing to Ruth, because now Ruth has found another husband, and Ruth has given birth. But there is a blessing at the end of chapter 4. The shift completely ignores Ruth. And the end of the book emphasizes Naomi's blessing and Naomi's line going down through Obed and Jesse and eventually to David. To David, 55 verses of the, um, 85 verses in this short story have to do with dialogue. 55 out of 85 verses have to do with dialogue. So it's going to be a personal book. We're going to see a lot into the characters of these individuals and how they are responding and reacting to the episodes of their life. We can break it down even more. We see that of the 1,294 words in the book, 1,294 words in the book, 678 are 52.4% or are dialogue. This is a book covering conversation. And in that conversation, we see what is going on in the souls of the characters. Now, if we take a little further analysis of that dialogue, we discover that Ruth speaks least. Even though the book's named for her, she speaks least, and her speeches are the shortest. She speaks only 120 words in 10 speeches, whereas Naomi speaks almost double. She speaks 225 words in 12 speeches, and uh, Boaz speaks 281 words in 14 speeches so if we were to base the uh, name of the book on the plot it would be the book of Naomi and if we were to base it on the dialogue it would be the book of Boaz but nevertheless the book has come down to us as focusing on Ruth it is the book of Ruth now the ancient Hebrew tradition connects it to judges even though the Hebrew canon doesn't place it there the Septuagint did the Septuagint connected it to Judges, and in the Septuagint arrangement, it was seen as an appendix to Judges, so it was viewed as one book, Judges Ruth, although that was not the uh, most ancient organization. Now, as a result of that, I mean, I mean, that is a result of the fact that there are several similarities between Judges 19 to 21, section we just finished studying in, uh, in Judges, there are several similarities between Judges 19 to 21 and the book of Ruth. And so we can compare and contrast these two episodes, the episodes at the end of Judges and the episodes in Ruth. One is a, uh, tells us about the chaos and the destruction, the internal fragmentation in Israel. But Ruth focuses on order and welfare and discipline these people are disciplined because they have doctrine there is, a, there is integrity in Boaz there is integrity in Ruth they are not self-serving Naomi is self-absorbed at first because of her pain and her misery and so she is reacting and responding to her loss and she is operating on emotion but Ruth and Boaz operate from, from integrity and from doctrine in their souls So we see this contrast between the order and welfare in Ruth and chaos and destruction during the time of the Judges. Another thing that we see is that both of these events, the events in Judges and the events in Ruth, take place in a superficially biblical culture. A superficially biblical culture. What I mean by that is that the acts and actions and the cultural mores are all Structured according to biblical nomenclature, biblical terminology, and that's not unlike our. But but it turns out as we look at that, that's only superficial. As we look at, at Judges 19 through 21, remember the the Levite will not go spend the night in the city of Jebus when he is uh, has gone down to uh, pick up his. Uh, concubine who left him, he goes to his father-in-law, he stays there. When he leaves to come back home, he leaves late in the day and he's forced to spend the night somewhere on the road. And, what, and since there wasn't a Motel 6 there with the light left on, he couldn't go into the city of Jebus. And he didn't want to go to Jebus because that, there was that opportunity there. That's the old name for Jerusalem because the Jebusites or the Canaanites were still in control. And he thought we would be unsafe there. He's superficially obeying the law which said, do not have a relationship with the Gentiles. Now, the reason the law said don't have a relationship with the Gentiles wasn't because it was, um, it was making some sort of negative, racially biased, prejudicial statement against the Gentiles. The issue was what they believed, not what, what they, what they, who they were racially. It was what they believed, not who they were racially, so that... Uh, God forbade the association and intermarriage with the Canaanites because he didn't want his people to be influenced by the pagan uh, ideas and the religions of the Canaanites. So the, the Levite is just superficially obeying the law. He doesn't understand the essence of it. He goes on and he spends a night in Gibeah, which is even worse because the people there have already given themselves over to paganism. Uh, the, the men are all involved in, in homosexuality, and it's a sexually perverse town. And there's that horrible contrast that the pagans in Jebus are more honorable than the uh, people of God in Gibeah. And so the, then, when after the concubine was uh, gang-raped and murdered, and he... The Levite called the nation together. We saw once again that they superficially went through the procedures of Deuteronomy 13, 12 and following to go out and investigate to get the answers. But while they're investigating to get the answers, they're already setting up their military action to go against the Benjamites. And when they do, rather than uh, conducting holy war as was authorized in Deuteronomy 13 to take out the city of Gibeah, they brought holy war against the whole tribe of benjamin and just about wiped it out so there's this superficial obedience to the to the letter of the law but not an understanding of the spirit of the law and not an understanding of its intent and so by application we see that there is there is uh are many parallels between that time and that situation and today one parallel has to do with the local church too often today, in modern evangelical Christianity in America, there is a, only a superficial adherence to biblical culture. There's only a superficial understanding of biblical terminology. We, we wrap our church services in biblical terminology, and we sing hymns that use biblical terminology. But few people in few churches really understand Bible doctrine. They are simply going through the motions of wor- worshiping some contentless concept of god and they completely reject what the scriptures say about that god and so in the local church we have the same thing going on that a church it has superficial understanding and in many cases where it's le- where the churches are dominated by legalism they're paying attention to the letter of the law but they don't understand the spirit of the law and we see the same thing happening in our nation as a whole now this is not a christian nation a nation cannot be Christian or non-Christian because that has to do with regeneration, and nations don't have souls, so nations can't be regenerate. But nations certainly have ideological heritages, and the heritage of our nation is primarily a Judeo-Christian heritage. That provided the, the uh, structure for the thinking of, uh, the, of our founding fathers and of those who originally uh, colonized and settled in uh, the uh, English colonies. Now, last week we saw an instance of how in our nation we have a superficial religion. We have a, it's not always recognized except in times of crisis, but we do have a, a civil religion, a uh, quasi secular religion that is ecumenical. And if you watch the ecumenical memorial service held out at the National Cathedral last week after the events of September 11th, then you notice that it included a Muslim imam from the Washington, D.C. area, a Jewish rabbi, Catholic priest, and the Protestant uh, Baptist, Billy Graham. It's a real mix. And while I have seen many negative comments and her negative comments, and in some cases the, the negative criticisms were legitimate made by uh, conservatives, there are some that have gone overboard and been very judgmental of that, and that just shows they don't understand our history. The history of the United States has always had this civil religion that is a hodgepodge of everything that's made up in the country. And that's because we have an amendment that protects the separation of church and state, and we have freedom of religion. So within this hodgepodge, the ecumenicalism of of an event like that is different from the ecumenicalism that takes place in a lot of churches. And the reason it's different is because they do not at that level, when the national government has some sort of religious service, they're not trying to proclaim the veracity of any one religion. But within that framework, they're giving each person the freedom to worship however they choose. And so we should not be critical of that because that's the very essence of the freedom that allows us to worship freely and teach what we believe about the Scriptures on Sunday morning. And in that context, it allowed... Um, each different person from different religious backgrounds to function freely within their own, the framework of their own religious beliefs. And we must recognize that on the basis of the concept of freedom and volition, the first divine institution where we emphasize that a marketplace is to have the free flow of not only goods but ideas. See, we believe in capitalism that there ought to be unhindered flow of goods, that the government shouldn't restrict the flow of of goods and services so that everything can achieve its proper market level. The same thing is true of Christianity. In the free marketplace of ideas, Christianity is either going to be accepted or rejected. You cannot impose Christianity on anybody. You can't force anybody to believe the truth. And so it's either going to be accepted or rejected, and that's going to determine the destiny of the nation. Now, as we've seen in our study of Judges, that was a time of tremendous apostasy, not unlike our own time. But just as there was hope in the dark days of the Judges, there's hope in our time. Just as God's grace brought uh, blessing out of suffering and turned cursing into blessing for that nation, He will do or can do the same for us. And it has to do with the, ultimately with the teaching of Bible doctrine and the response to doctrine. Because that's what was going on at the same time. If we chart things out and lay out a chronology, what we see is by the end of the days of the judges... Now, Ruth doesn't take place near the end. It takes place early on. But continuously throughout that period, there were Bible teachers, there were prophets. And by the end of the book of Judges, during the time when Samson is a judge, at the same time Samson's alive... Samuel is alive, and Samuel, as a prophet, begins to teach the Bible. He begins to teach others, and they go throughout the land. And as a result of the people's positive response to doctrine, there is a transformation of the culture of Israel that ultimately culminates in their blessing under the Davidic kingship. Well, that helps us to understand the basic orientation of Ruth at its beginning. So we can expect to discover certain doctrines, certain ideas that we're going to emphasize and study as we go through this. First of all, we're going to see that, that autonomous human viewpoint can coexist with divine viewpoint in a culture by wrapping itself up in divine viewpoint or biblical terminology. And that's what one way Satan deceives and counterfeits the truth is he borrows biblical terminology and then manipulates it, massages it, so that eventually it takes on non-biblical meaning and term and um, and non-biblical significance. So you have words today like spirituality. Spirituality is a solid biblical term, yet the way it's used by Probably 98% of the people in this country, they don't have a clue what spirituality is, and they think of it in terms of their own emotional well-being or their own psychological stability. It no longer has to do with a person's right relationship with God based, first of all, on salvation at the cross, putting faith alone in Christ alone, trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and secondly, right relationship to God the Holy Spirit. So what happens is that in, in the pagan thought always seems to infiltrate the church because we are filled with people who are raised thinking divine viewpoint, or thinking human viewpoint, and then they start coming to church operating on their human viewpoint instead of divine viewpoint. Rather than letting their thinking be transformed by the word, they look at the word and they say, well, how can that be? I just can't understand why the Bible is so negative to women. I know some women who are fine teachers and fine communicators. I just can't understand why the Bible is so mean to women and won't let women be preachers. And so then there's a rejection, and they start finding rationalizations for why the Bible just can't be taken literally. And so next thing you know, women are authorized to be preachers in many denominations, and that becomes a major issue and it 's very possible that uh, if things continue to decline in this nation towards relativism and apostasy, then you can see the federal government come along and view churches that do not allow women to be pastor teachers that they would see them as being discriminatory, and that that would eventually be a hate crime i 've even heard um, I heard somebody this last week make 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 the View known that they thought profiling should be a hate crime, and that's going isn't that going to be an interesting thing to watch now? Since goodness, all of the um, all of the perpetrators of the um, terrorist actions were all from the Middle East and they were all Arabs and they were all Muslims. Yet what's happened is, see, this is the danger. You see, the same thing happening. And uh, we will see it when we come to the end of our of our um, of our study this morning, because we're going to conclude by beginning a study of how to answer the question: Why does a good God let good God let bad things happen to people? And one of the problems is that that in our thinking, you take a concept and you divorce it from God from the Scriptures, and and you make that an overarching independent concept, and then you then use that to come back and judge Scripture. And what happens with the, with the love of God is people then take love, divorce it from everything the Scripture uses to define love, and then they, then they load it with their own concept of what love is, and then they make that this overriding principle, and they say, well, God doesn't fit the idea of love. See, they've they they screwed up love. They've made it an autonomous, independent category that they've invented and loaded with their own meaning, and then they say, well, God doesn't fit my idea of love, and, and therefore, a God because in my idea of love, a God, God wouldn't allow this to, these kinds of things to happen. Therefore, God can't be loving and allow these things to happen at the same time. See, what happens when we take concepts and we abstract them, and make those the overarching principles, ripping them from, from a context, then we end up putting ourselves in serious trouble. And that's exactly what's going to happen with profiling. Profiling has been made to be a terrible evil. But everybody profiles. Everybody sets and there's a good way and a bad way to do it. And in some cases, it's bad just because you look at somebody and say, automatically, and you judge them as being guilty. But if we take what's been developed as making profiling the horrible evil that's happened under our postmodern multicultural system, see this multi—you watch the news, you watch what's happening under multiculturalism, because it's going to come back and attack patriotism in a big way, and we've already seen this. But what's happening in profiling? Profiling has been ripped out of context, so even the word's a bad word. I was watching one news commentator this last week. And he was interviewing some, some, I think it was a Brit, who made the comment that we have to profile. And he said, no, 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 we can't, we can't, it's just automatically evil. Well, see, that's what's happened, they have just made this an autonomous category. And you cannot do that. You have to exercise judgment. Now, granted, there are going to be things that happen that are not just, But guess what, folks? We live in an evil world. We live in Satan's world, and everybody goes through unjust sufferings. We need to do what we can to limit it. But the the tragedy of the last couple of weeks is that if we let our guard down, then we're very likely to see thousands more get killed. So it's better to err on the side of being safe than not, and we can't let some kind of autonomous liberal philosophy that is not grounded in reality. Because remember, at the core of all this liberalism is the idea that man is basically good and man can reform society and perfect society. And that's one reason that many liberals have seemed to be rather sourpusses. The la- during the last week and you see these horrible expressions on their face is because they, they're coming face-to-face with a reality that doesn't fit their world view, that everybody's wonderful and the world is perfectible. So uh, you just, just watch out for that. Another way in which, we're, and we're going to study this more when we get into worldliness in our First John study, just be careful of what's going to happen with patriotism. This last week we started hearing reports on the news about some uh, news organizations who would not allow any of their personnel to wear an American flag on their uh, on their clothes because that might oh, people might not think we're objective. Well, we already know you're not objective. I mean, that's not the issue. Come on, what a lie! But the, and, and what they're showing is, that, see, the problem the way this affects multiculturalism in postmodernism. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative. And that means every culture is relative. That's the core of multiculturalism. Every culture is relative, so no culture is better than another culture. That means the most pagan, perverted culture on the planet, on the face of the planet, can't be said to be any better or any worse than a culture that has the highest level of virtue and integrity. You can't make those kind of judgments. And patriotism. When you're proud of the United States of America is making that, you're making that kind of a judgment. You're saying America is better than everybody else. And so everybody goes, oh, 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 that's nationalism. We can't be that way. That's so horrible. You know, we're going to go back to jingoism or some sort of problem in the 19th century. And isn't this terrible? Folks, we've been attacked. We got to get rid of all this insidious evil of postmodernism and cultural diversity and everything else because what it's going to do is come back and destroy the unity that we have right now to protect this nation. We are one nation. This, notice, I haven't heard anybody talk about cultural diversity in the last week. We are one nation, not a diverse nation, and we have to come together and understand that. Otherwise, we're going to be fragmented. and We're going to follow the path of Israel in Judges 19. Through 21, but this multiculturalism, these people who have bought into this, into postmodernism, hook line and sinker, it's going to start showing itself in this kind, these kinds of little details. Like you can't wear a flag. There's a company down in Florida, an American company with American employees, so nobody could wear a flag or display a flag uh, at the office because somebody might get offended. And um, there have been other situations. There was a number of them. I went out on the Fox News uh, website this last week, and there was a long article with about fifteen, or reporting on about fifteen or sixteen cases around the country of this kind of uh, activity, where companies were not allowing anybody to display the American flag, and that is an outgrowth of this kind of postmodern type of thinking, where you can't. Uh, elevate yourself, and that uh, runs in the face of what it means to be a true American. And it is dangerous, and I think borders on being traitorous at times like this. So we need to be very careful and watch that just because there seem to be signs of national unity, there are also signs that the uh, paganism that has so infected and de- destroyed our nation uh, is still alive and well so we're going to see that autonomous human viewpoint can coexist with divine viewpoint and still wrap itself in the mantle of biblical or divine viewpoint terminology and activity we're also going to learn to understand why God blesses and why he doesn't we're going to see how God blesses even when lip service is given to the scriptures we're also going to look at how God Works even in undeserved suffering. What to do when you believe God has treated you in an illegitimate manner? When you think God has been unfaithful to you? I don't mean some superficial complaint, but something serious, something profound, where you believe God has truly uh, done wrong by you. And this is the Naomi's complaint is that she thinks that she has been ill-treated by God because her husband and her sons are dead. And so she is going to bring a complaint against God, and so we'll discover the answer to why bad things happen to good people. Furthermore, we're going to see how to apply the Scriptures biblically versus applying the Scriptures simply on the basis of some sort of independent human viewpoint. And that's always the problem. Is the, and we're going to see a classic example of it in the second hour of our study in, in 1 John, is that people want to apply the Scriptures not biblically. They don't want to come in and interpret the Bible on its own terms, but they want to read things into it and interpret it on the basis of their own experience or on their own independent reason. Well, if, if Ruth is located in the Hebrew canon in the book, in the section of the Ketuvim, where does it fit in the flow of history? We've already stated that it takes place during the time of the conquest, during the time of Judges. And we see this in verse 1 of Ruth, where it says, In the time of when the Judges judged, or the time when the Judges governed in Israel. So that places us historically. It's the time it came about in the days when the Judges governed. But... That covered a large period of time. We said it covered a period of about 350 to 400 years. So we have to see if we can pinpoint that a little more. Generally, though, we have to place this in its flow in history. Before we get into details, we have to put it in the flow of history. Now, here is, a, in this timeline... On the overhead, we're going to place the history of Israel. And the lower timeline, we're going to see the experience of the believer. Because the key events in the history of Israel are analogous. And another word that's used is they are a type of the key events that happen in the salvation history of an individual. For example, in Genesis 12.1, Abraham is called. The believer is called in time, according to Romans eight twenty-eight through thirty. For whomsoever God calls, these He also justifies. Abraham is called, the nation is called, and then the nation is redeemed. It goes into slavery. So, and we are born as slaves to sin. They are slaves in Egypt, and we are born slaves to sin. Then there is redemption. The nation is redeemed at the Exodus event. Then they are baptized in Moses at the Red Sea. We are redeemed by the work of Christ on the cross and we are baptized into Christ at the instant of our salvation by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is after our redemption that, or after their redemption, and the parting of the Red Sea that Israel is given the law. Notice, in in the typology, it's very clear the law was never given to Israel to be saved. The law came after their salvation as a nation. It doesn't have to do with individual salvation. It has to do with uh, their redemption and salvation as a nation. So, the law is post-salvation. And so, the same thing is true in the New Testament. We have the mandates and prohibitions of the New Testament, which define sanctification. So that in the history of Israel, everything that happens after Exodus 19 has to do with sanctification and is analogous to the believers' sanctification and the spiritual life. So what happened after after, uh, the giving of the law was that God promised the nation a land, and he gave them the land. And they were to take the land. And the question then is, how do I enjoy the land that God has given me when it is occupied by enemy forces? See, that's the same question we are to ask as a new believer. God has given us a new life in Christ. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have an unlimited amount of spiritual assets, yet we are still living a life that at the point right after salvation is not any different from the life of an unbeliever. We don't know any different. That's all we can do after salvation is continue to live as we did before salvation. God has given us a new life. How do we enjoy the new life that God has given me when it is still occupied by enemy forces? Israel said, how do I enjoy the land God's given me when it's still occupied by enemy forces? And we asked the question, how do I enjoy the new life when my mentality, my thinking, is still occupied by enemy thinking? by enemy forces. That is a warfare analogy. Throughout the Scriptures, sanctification is always taught through warfare metaphors. It's always presented in the context of warfare and battle. Why? Because we live in a world that is dominated by Satan. We live in Satan's world. That's one reason that there is unjust or undeserved suffering in the world because we live in a fallen world, a world where there is evil. Now, people want... An explanation. Why did this evil thing happen last week? How could a good God let evil happen? They want a rational explanation for evil. But by its very nature, sin and evil are irrational. And there is not a rational explanation. People think about Satan. We've gone through our study in the second hour on angelic conflict. And a few weeks ago, we studied the, the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. How could this brilliant creature, the most brilliant the most beautiful, the most uh, intelligent of all of the creatures to come from the hand of God. How in the world could he have deceived himself so much into thinking he could be like God? I mean, how could he do that? People just don't understand. Well, we can't understand. It's irrational. Sin is not rational. There is not a rational explanation behind it. So, one of the reasons that... uh, That we live in a fallen world, one of the reasons we have undeserved suffering is because of the irrationality of evil in the world. And there is a real leader of the forces of evil, and there is real evil in the world. And many people don't want to face that. They want to live in denial of that, that there isn't real evil, that people are basically good, it's basically a good world. And then something like that happens, and it just absolutely shakes their understanding of reality to the core. In the Old Testament, the analogy was holy war. And you have holy war at the beginning of the Old Testament in in Joshua and in Judges. But holy war ended. The last time there was legitimate holy war was in the early chapters of Judges, Judges 1 and 2. But by the death of Joshua, there was no longer justified holy war except in the rare instances of a city in the land becoming paganized and the Jews having to uh, operate on the principles of Deuteronomy chapter 13. From Judges 2 on, the principle is just war. And the theory for just war is that is based on the principle of self-defense. Just war is built on the principle of self-defense. Holy war, by contrast, calls for the total annihilation of the enemy Because God was doing something in the land. He needed the removal of evil so that his people could have a land to live in, that they would be free from the influence of paganism. Just war, on the other hand, is limited. It does not call for total annihilation of the enemy. Its principle is based on self-defense and the idea that just as it is legitimate and moral to take a life to protect one's own life or one's friends or family, in the same way, it is just and right to take lives to defend one's nation, one's country, and one's freedom. So there is no biblical basis, even though there have always been Christians who have distorted biblical passages to, to uh, support pacifism. Even though there's always been pacifistic um, Christians, it is not biblical. The Bible does not authorize pacifism for the believer. We are not to just fold up and say, oh, somehow this is going to uh, all resolve itself. And so we just don't, we shouldn't be in the military and we shouldn't fight. You see the principle of of, uh, freedom through military victory from the time of the Joshua and the judges. You see it at the time of Nehemiah. You see it uh, at the time when when Israel was trying to defend itself against the Romans and they lost and lost their freedom and lost their nation. And you see it throughout the... uh, church age there have been many uh, great believers who served in the military and many great military men who have also been uh, great believers throughout history warfare is not and being in the military and being involved in warfare is not antagonistic to being a Christian in fact the whole idea of pacifism I would contend is a result of feminization of the male and it's happened at different times in history as a result of pagan ideas of the role of men and women. And we see that today. Uh, I saw a sickening interview the other day between some reporter who was interviewing some college kids down in New York. I mean, these were kids that witnessed what took place on September 11th. And a couple of the kids had great answers, and they were ready to go serve. And they interviewed this one kid, and he said, well... I just, I, I, you know, I think we ought to do it, but, but I don't think I'll ever serve in the military because I'm just afraid. And I thought, but he said, but that doesn't mean I'm not patriotic. I said, yes, it does. You know, you don't redefine your terminology. I mean, that's like you hear people today saying, well, I know so-and-so, and he killed three people, but he's really a good person. No, he's not. I mean, that's a definition. You know, you're a murderer. You're not a good person. You know, if you're a coward and won't go serve in the military to defend the freedom of your nation, you're not a patriot. Patriotism means that you're willing to do whatever, whenever, no matter what the cost to serve your nation in a time of need, period. Whatever that entails, whenever you're called upon to do it. Because it's that nation, it is this nation that has given us the freedoms that we have to enjoy all of the blessing and prosperity the rest of the time. You do, there's no such thing as a free lunch, folks, and freedom is not free. Every now and then we have to earn it, and some generation has to go out onto the battlefield and die so that the rest of us can be free and so that our children and our grandchildren can be free. And that has to happen, and that's good, and that's right, and it's just. And anybody who won't do it is a coward, and they ought to be dealt with as cowards, and they ought to be removed from society in some way. But unfortunately, when you live in a society that has feminized the male and you have uh, uh, curricula in various education systems that have been influenced by radical feminism so that boys are not allowed to play any kind of war games and, and even in some places there's, there has been talk of removing sports because that just creates more competition and, and, and the boys and just get more competitive and we can't have that. Uh, I, it's just amazing the idiocy that has gained legitimacy. I mean, we're talking about PhDs who are in positions of power and influence in some school systems in this nation. We've, get, we've made the idiots, we've put the idiots in charge of the asylum, it seems. Anyway, so warfare is always legitimate in the Scripture, and that seems to be the background for understanding the spiritual life. It is a battle, it is a war in order for to prevent human viewpoint from taking over the soul now in terms of background i want to look at one verse in judges before we move on to give us the background of what is taking place during this period turn with me to judges chapter 2 verse 20 judges chapter 2 verse 20 This is talking about the cycle of discipline that the nation went through during the time of the judges. After their disobedience and idolatry, verse 20, So the anger of the Lord would burn against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. Now, that is part of the answer to why does God, a good God, let bad things happen to good people. There's other problems with that statement, but for now we'll overlook some of them. One of the reasons is that God, God, God has created a world where there are free creatures, And in order to stop all evil, God must stop the function of free will. And God's not going to do that until he is ready to bring that to pass. And in the meantime, he allows evil to continue for this very reason, to test believers. In the Old Testament, it was designed to test Israel to see if they would continue to be faithful. God allowed evil, He allowed false religions, and He allowed false prophets in order to test Israel. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 18 regarding false prophets that one of the reasons He allowed false prophets to prophesy is to test the people to see if they would be faithful to the Word and not to experience. So, one of the reasons evil is allowed to continue is to test us to see if we are willing to continue to follow the Lord even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of difficulty. Now, there are several parallels, as I stated, between Judges and Ruth. And we see this in in comparing Judges 19 to 21 with Ruth. I want you to turn over to, to Judges 19. Let's take a quick look at Judges 19. And we'll see that there are several words that aren't used anywhere else in Judges. That are used in Judges 19 to 21, and are also used in Ruth, and that tells us that that doesn't happen by chance. God, the Holy Spirit doesn't doesn't just write things haphazardly, but the similarity in vocabulary suggests that Ruth took, takes place at the same time that this horrible civil war is taking place, or, or approximately during that same general time period. In Judges 19:6, we see. that um, when the Levite goes to pick up his concubine at his father-in-law's, they really enjoy themselves, and they have a lot of good meals together. And in verse 6 we read, So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, uh, Please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. So they're going to uh, eat, and they are going to have some good wine, And uh, they are going to get uh, maybe a little bit inebriated in order to enjoy themselves and relax. Now, if you turn over to Ruth chapter 3, verse 7, we see this same phraseology. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Now, what we're going to discover is that after the girl's father and the Levite ate and drank and had their little banquet party... Um, then all hell broke loose after that on the way home. And yet, the, you, though you have a similar event of Boaz eating and drinking and his heart becoming merry in Ruth 3.7, the result is he still operates in integrity, and the result is something that glorifies God and leads to Israel's blessings. So there's a parallel there. Also, there's a parallel of of um, in. In uh, Judges, in verses 44 and 46 of Judges chapter 20, Judges uh, 20, 44 and 46, we read, that 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All of these were valiant warriors." And this is the Hebrew word, chayil. It means that they were, uh, it's a high verb of praise, chayil, H-A-Y-I-L. And it means that these were soldiers who had tremendous courage and integrity, and even though they were on the wrong side, they were defending their freedoms in Benjamin, and the Holy Spirit praises them by calling them valiant warriors in verse 44 and again in verse 46. And we find that same terminology used again in Ruth. So if we turn over to Ruth chapter 2, we find it applied to, to Ruth herself. Are uh, to um, to Boaz. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth. And the word Hyel has to do not with great or large amount, but but integrity, and the fact that he was a wealthy man. He was also a man of integrity and courage. So this tells us something about uh, Boaz. And then in Ruth 3:11, this word Hayyel is said to describe. Ruth In verse 3, chapter 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. yield, a woman of excellence, a woman of integrity, a woman of courage. So what we find here is similar terminology between these two sections. And there are other similarities that I don't have time to go into that indicate and suggest that Ruth takes place during the time... Of the judges, and during that time of Judges 19 through 21. Now, there's one other thing that we have to cover before we get into Ruth itself, just in terms of background. We just have a few minutes left, so I'm just going to hit this in a very brief way. We've covered this before, and that is to understand the background of a covenant. And the reason we have to do this. As first of all I stated, by looking at the time of the judges, the problem is that the people broke God's covenant, and so God has to discipline them. That was part of the covenant. The other reason is that a key word for understanding Ruth is the Hebrew word chesed. Hesed means God's faithful, loyal love. It, is, it emphasizes faithfulness, loyalty steadfastness and his love for the nation. It is a concept that is completely devoid of emotion and focuses always on action. It's the same concept that underlies um, Jesus' understanding of love when he tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not measured by emotion or feeling it's measured by action and chesed always has to do with a covenant it is sometimes described as covenant loyalty and that means it is objective and not subjective and so we have to remind ourselves of the fact that God entered into a covenant with Israel that is the Mosaic covenant And this is typified and summarized in the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter chapter 19, or Exodus chapter 20. And this is based on the ancient model of a suzerain-vassal treaty. That's what it's called, a suzerain-vassal treaty. We've gone over this before. Suzerain is a feudal term for a great king or a great lord. A great king or a great lord, and a vassal has to do with his servant. And then this was a treaty in the ancient world, usually between one empire and a smaller client nation. And there were certain elements to this. First of all, there is a preamble that identifies the great king. And this is comparable, if you... Take the time. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We'll show how this very neatly fits over the uh, Mosaic law. Exodus 20, verses, verse uh, 2 says, I am the Lord your God. That's the preamble. Chapter 20, verse 2a. Identifies the great king who is initiating the covenant and is going to ingratiate the vassal to himself. Then there is a historical prologue. In the historical prologue, there is a reminder of what the suzerain, what the great king has done for the vassal to secure the allegiance of the vassal for the great king. So the historical prologue is simply a reminder of how the great king has acted in the past in order to benefit the vassal. And so we see this in in the remainder of verse 2, I am the Lord your God is the, is the preamble and then the historical prologue who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's a reminder of what God has done for them. Then there are the stipulations. The stipulations involve the 613 commandments. It's not just 10 commandments. 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. Those are the, all of the stipulations, the, the do's and the don'ts. See, this is not simply law. One thing you ought to see here is we, have, we, we always tend to abstract things because of our Western heritage. We abstract. I've talked about this already. We abstract principles, we abstract words, and then we get in, ourselves in trouble. We think of law as an, as an impersonal abstraction. But the Mosaic Law is not impersonal. It's not this abstract concept of some some absolute hanging out in, in, in the universe somewhere. But it involves a personal relationship. The mandates of the law are built on the fact that God has established a personal relationship with Israel. law, therefore, is ultimately personal and it's not impersonal. It's not just some arbitrary abstraction. It is a based on a treaty between people, God and man. For example, why do we not kill? And the word there is ratsach, meaning murder. Why is it wrong to murder? Not simply because it is a, a, an abstract principle that it is wrong, but because God says it is wrong, because God has entered into a relationship with man, and man is created in God's image. That's why it's wrong, not because there's just some abstract ideal out there that hangs in space somewhere saying it's just wrong to kill. It's wrong to murder because it's wrong to take, illegitimately take a life from one God, to whom God has given a life. Then the fourth element the fourth element is there are rules for deposit. The copies of the treaty are placed on deposit somewhere so that people can go and look at them. It's not something that just is left. To be, for memory, and the record of the treaty would be placed. The suzerain would keep one, and the vassal would keep one. But in this case, both copies are placed in the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God dwelled, and it was kept in Israel. So both—that's co- why you have two copies. You know, you get the idea when you see the Ten Commandments. There are two tablets. Some people think there are five commandments on one tablet and five on the other tablet. That's wrong. There were ten commandments on each tablet. You have two copies of the law. One's God's copy and one's man's copy, and both are placed on deposit in the Ark of the Covenant. Then there are witnesses. There is is a witness to to the contract. It is not simply given in abstraction again, and this is given in Exodus chapter 24, all the tribes and the altar are witnesses, and the Song of Deuteronomy 32 uh, reiterates that. And then, in the final analysis, there are, the final section, there are cursings and blessings. If you, the vassal, do not obey the stipulations, then the suzerain is going to judge you in certain ways. If, on the other hand, you... Uh, obey the stipulations, then there will be benefits and blessings to you as a people. And that's given in Exodus 23, verses 20 to 23, uh, Leviticus 26, and also Deuteronomy 28, where we have the five cycles of discipline. Exodus 23, 20 to 23, Leviticus 26, and Deuteronomy 28. And hesed is the fact that God is faithful to this covenant. And that is going to be the theme of Ruth, is that God always deals with his people faithfully. Naomi is going to challenge that. How can God be faithful to me? He's made me bitter. He hasn't dealt with me faithfully. And yet, Ruth is, the book of Ruth is going to show how God deals faithfully with us, even in the midst of unde, what we think is undeserved suffering, sorrow, and personal calamity. We'll get into the book next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word, to be reminded of your grace that you are the God who transforms cursing into blessing and sadness into joy. You are the God who continuously deals with us on the basis of grace despite our own failing shortcomings and sin. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, does not know of their eternal destiny that you would make it clear to them this morning that just as... A Israel was undeserving of God's mercy, so we are all undeserving of your mercy. And that is what makes it grace, that it is undeserved love, unmerited kindness, and that you have done everything for us by providing a perfect salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would... Make this clear to anyone here who is not saved that salvation is not based on who they are or what they do. It's based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. Therefore, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned in your word today. We pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.